From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. As federal money pours into Georgia to end new HIV infections, hundreds of people living with HIV and AIDS are being threatened with eviction. Nonprofit providers accuse the city of being chronically late with a total of $41 million in federal HIV funds, money earmarked to provide HIV and AIDS clients a place to live. Well, yesterday, the Atlanta City Council voted to appropriate $1.5 million in emergency funding to pay for housing and other services that clients of the living room depend on. A lawsuit filed by that organization in July accuses the city of withholding funds. That stopgap measure just scratches the surface of a messy feud with allegations of mismanagement and retaliation that could leave a vulnerable population homeless. Here to tell us more is Willoughby Mariano, who's been reporting on the issue for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Patrick Saunders has closely tracked this story for Project Q Atlanta Magazine. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Patrick, let's roll this back from the vote yesterday. When and how did the city get so far behind with payments for people living with AIDS and HIV? So this uh, started, it's been going on for years and years. The program has had an issue with, the city's had an issue with getting these funds out and expedited in a you know normal schedule for a while. It really picked back up. Uh, we did a series of stories about a year ago, and then uh, about a month or two ago, we started hearing uh, that it had not only had it, uh, gotten, not gotten better, but it had gotten worse. Okay. Uh, so the delays just got you know worse and worse. Typically, they're supposed to get reimbursed these agencies about a month within um, after they ask for the reimbursement. Uh, sometimes those um, those delays were about six, nine, ten months. But basically, it's important to understand. I guess the program itself. It's a federally federally funded program. Um, housing Housing and Urban Development runs it. Um, they issue these grants every year to the city. The city of Atlanta is then in charge of distributing those funds to uh, these agencies that house low-income people with HIV. Um, so Atlanta got about a $23 million grant last year. Um, they then distribute those funds to the agencies. The agencies use that money to subsidize rent for these low-income people with HIV. Okay, so you're explaining the program that's called HOPWA, Housing exactly. Opportunities for Person with AIDS, federal grant, but managed by the city of Atlanta. Exactly. So why does the city say it's so far behind Willoughby? They have a very bureaucratic explanation. It's, it has to do with a mismatch in federal uh, uh, fiscal years and local fiscal years, but that doesn't explain the entire issue because uh, there are millions and millions and millions of dollars that have remained unspent since as far back as 2014, we found. Uh, so there, when you talk to advocates, they have a slightly different explanation. They believe that the program has not been adequately staffed with the people with the uh, very specific knowledge that you need to f- uh, to manage one of these complicated grants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of money, too. Oh, we're, yeah. We're talking about a total of $41 million. That's 40% of the $101 million allotted by the federal government to Georgia for HIV and AIDS prevention. So what is that remaining money spent on? Do we know, Patrick? So what is the remaining money spent yeah. on? Um, I mean, it looks like they've, uh, you know, they're tr- trying to disp- disperse this money because they're saying that number, the, you know, HUD is still sticking to that $40 million number. Um, the city is, you know, saying it's inaccurate, that it's closer to about $30 million. That still remains. The question is, why is there $30 million that hasn't been distributed yet? Um, so, it's, you know, they're trying to get caught up on these funds. As far as we know, they've initiated a new plan. So we'll see what happens from there. So let's look at this living, the living room. This is a long-term contractor with the city that, to provide services. How does it work with people living with the virus, Willoughby? 
Well, it is supposed to um, help them receive housing services and other supportive services so they can keep up with that housing. What they do is they pay a portion of, uh, of these patients' rent based upon their income, and often they, they make very little money, Social Security maybe, disability. So, and if that money does not come through, how far behind are some of the the people who are living in these agency provided housing? I talked to one woman yesterday who is uh, whose landlord has not been paid for five months. Mm-hmm. Luckily, she has an extraordinary, caring, compassionate landlord. But basically, he's subsidizing uh, her rent. A you know, she he's subsidizing the city when the city is sitting on arguably thirty to forty million dollars. How many people might be threatened with eviction are we, are we looking at? So as far as the living room situation, it's uh, the city says it's about 230-ish people. Um, there was a meeting last week where the, uh, a bunch of city officials uh, met with a bunch of HOPWA agencies, advocates, people actually affected by this, people that are at risk of being evict- evicted. Um, they say at this point the update on these people being evicted, there's about 77, about a third of that group um, has been stably housed. There's about 110 that have been referred to uh, uh, other HOPO agencies uh, since the city terminated a living room's contract um, earlier this month, or excuse me, in July. Um, and then there's about 40 people that they just have, un- they're unaccounted for. They've sent mailers, called, do- did door knocks, and the city says they're still trying to find them. Patrick, I want to ask you about that meeting in a second, but I'd love mm-hmm. to hear from Willoughby, who was at yesterday's city council meeting. What did you hear? Um, not much. They <laughs> uh, voted uh, to give uh, over uh, $1.5 million worth of emergency funding the city as an advance to uh, house and provide emergency services for the people who are no longer being served by the living room. There was no discussion on it uh, by the city council members, and, and the vote happened unanimously. So how far is that $1.5 million going to go? It's not entirely clear. Now, uh, after some debate, the city finally did decide to collaborate with service providers to see what that would actually cost. And, and, and the hope is that uh, it, will get people, uh, it will get people who are at risk of losing their homes back into homes. That's Willoughby Mariano from the AJC. Also with me, Patrick Saunders from Project Q, Atlanta Magazine. They're both reporters who've been covering an HIV housing program crisis now going on in Atlanta. Well, Let's ask a little bit more about that. The city did cancel its contract with the living room. That was last month. Accusations got a little more sorted, I would say. In a lawsuit filed by the living room, it said that it has not been reimbursed by the city and, in fact, withheld these funds for what reason, Willoughby? They said it was retaliation over spurned sexual and romantic advances. Uh, advances. What happened is that apparently, according to this lawsuit, the um, the head of the Hopper program at the time asked uh, the executive director of the living room on a date to go see, you know, a, a movie in January. And uh, that executive director said, hey, uh, can I bring a third person? I want to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And uh, that's when things went down. Oh, well, so what does what does the city say in response to that suit? Um, you know, they they say no comment because we don't comment on pending litigation. The person alleged to, uh, you know, the former department head no longer works for the city, has been terminated. Uh, but not specifically for this reason, according to you know records in you know, his personnel file. So um, and he also denies these allegations. And that person is Office of Human Services Director or former director, we should say, Preston Brandt. Yes. 
The suit says this action involves a retaliatory campaign by the Office of Human Service and Grants Management to destroy the living room and its executive director, Jerome Brooks. So Brandt is no longer employed. What's what's happening as all of this is held up in the air? Do we know? I mean, you know, there's there as far as the living room situation, uh, you know, they're trying to I know they're trying to house these people. They're doing the emergency aid is specifically for uh, the agencies that are stepping in to house the living room clients. Um, so, uh, you know, diff- basically different. Uh, the city and everyone else is coming to these agencies saying, OK, can you take 20 people? Can you take 30 people? Um, these are all former living room clients. And then um, they they could take them. Yes. But they also already have. Uh, delays in their own funding for their usual programming. So, uh, and the city's asking them to take on more. So, this emergency funding is kind of a stopgap measure to to go ahead and get them this, so they can you know at least take care of the immediate issue. And you said mentioned that this has been going on for a long time. Mayor mm-hmm. Keisha Lance Bottom proposed a long term fix last mm-hmm. month, hoping that backers will end the funding problem. What did she propose? So, uh, there's the immediate thing is a housing re- relocation effort, and that's being led by Partners for Home, which is a nonprofit kind of a quasi-governmental agency that runs the city's uh, continuum of care, basically their homeless services uh, grant, their homeless services grant from the federal government. So uh, they want to put, the long-term plan is they want to put HOPLA management, basically HOPLA grants management under Partners for Home. Um, That can't happen until fiscal year 2020, which starts about uh, June, well, about fall uh, this upcoming uh, this upcoming fall they'll start to get the actual grants mm-hmm. for that um, so they want to put it they want to move it from this office of grants management and the office of human services which was Preston Brandt's office um, put it under uh, partners for home uh, the only thing the only caveat with that is that uh, partners for home would take this with a clean break starting fiscal year 2020 going forward there's still the matter of fiscal year 2014 to 2019 and all these unspent funds which the city would still be in charge of not partners for home now, Patrick you you mentioned earlier that you were at a meeting last week addressing housing issues. This was held by the city. Here's one resident who attended that meeting who said her rent has not been paid in eight months. I don't have nowhere else to go. They stopped me in the middle of my tracks was like, well, we can't help you. I think it's really crazy that you see a person that's going through so many different challenges and you guys have so many um, rules and regulations of getting into housing and you put us on housing. So we've been talking about the machinations up at the top level, but how are officials and agencies responding to residents and nonprofits and activists? How are they helping these residents? Who wants to pick that up? I mean, so there's, you know, a group of uh, HIV activists, doctors, researchers, uh, they sent a letter to the city basically saying, and it was about two weeks ago, saying that they have, it's about a group of 100, saying they've lost total faith and confidence, was their quote, um, in the city of Atlanta's ability to run the program. Um, they asked for a restructuring plan, which actually, um, the apparently behind the scenes, uh, it was very similar to the one that actually ended up coming out, um, this one I just told you about, for Partners for Home. Uh, that same group sent a second letter um, a few days later uh, that basically saying, you know, the city council was on recess, could not vote on this emergency aid um, that will be mentioned that was passed yesterday. Uh, They wanted a special meeting call to go ahead and get this uh, um, funding okayed. And um, but the city CFO uh, decided uh, that it wasn't warranted. So uh, they ended up passing it on the first day they got back from from recess. Which office is going to be managing this one point five million in emergency funding? Is that Office of Human Services? Do we know? Um, actually, that's a good question. Yeah. We we really don't know. It didn't say in the legislation who would run it. And I think there's a lot of um, 
anxiety over whether or not, uh, over who is going to be managing this money. However, Partners for Home has been very, um, has been moving very quickly and is in charge of the lot of the rehoming uh, efforts. So, so it appears that they're going to be playing, uh, you know, the lead role in this. Willoughby, I know you've been reporting on this uh, uh, the, from the legislative or policy-based perspective. What are you hearing from activists and from residents? Well, they're very frustrated. This should never have happened, and it didn't need to happen. Um, the immediate crisis is only sort of a, you know, an extreme manifestation of, uh, you know, of longstanding problems that could have been corrected years ago, and honestly, that the mayor knew about uh, before she took office. Mm-hmm. And an ongoing lawsuit, of course. What's likely to happen with residents now? Um, well, hopefully they'll be rehomed. It's a difficult process because um, uh, because of privacy concerns. Uh, there's been disputes about who you know who is allowed to tell what information to what agency. Mm-hmm. So that process has been literally involving knocking on doors and um, and trying to convince people to come forward. And there are a number of them who have not yet. And of course, it's hard when you have a record of not paying rent for whatever reason behind you. And and it's important to note out the link between housing and health as far as HIV goes. Uh, you know, when uh, housing instability is is closely linked to you know, if, if someone's living with HIV and they had this issue with housing instability, all their other priorities sort of fall by the wayside because they're just trying to get a roof over their head. So, uh, you know, being able to get medication, being able to get to doctor's appointments, um, not not to mention the stress. The people that I've talked to, activists, everyone else. Um, you know, they keep mentioning trauma. This is a trauma on these people living with HIV. They don't care about this living room lawsuit or any of this other stuff that's going on at the city level. They just need to find a home, and, you know, it's adversely affecting their health until they do. And, and can I underscore the impact there? I talked to a man who cannot get a kidney transplant because he does not have a stable home. Mm. This is it, it, this is an extraordinary, uh, potentially life-threatening situation. Well, Willoughby Mariano, Patrick Saunders, thanks so much for reporting on it with us. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought in just a moment. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Look what you've done to me. I'm fading away. So toxic, how could I not see? At 18 years old, Avery Gibson is already an award-winning singer and songwriter. Her first single, Look What You've Done, came out earlier this year. At 17, Avery was a winner of the songwriter shootout at Eddie's Attic. She's headlining Eddie's Attic Indicator tonight. But first, we invited her to add two songs, written or performed by a Georgian, to our Georgia playlist. Um, Hi, my name is Avery Gibson, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. So my first song for the Georgia playlist is Statesboro Blues. Um, It was originally written by Blind Willie McTell, who is actually also from Georgia, and then later performed by the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, 
what I really like about this song is that, just like the Almond Brothers, it incorporates all of many different genres. Um, it has that kind of jazzy, bluesy vibe while also being a rock song. Um, and that's really what the Almond Brothers do. There's a really awesome um, guitar slide. My mom is from Mississippi, and growing up there, she listened to the Deltas and the blues kind of music a lot, and so I really wanted to pick something that kind of had that bluesy, Delta-ish vibe, but was from Atlanta, or from Georgia at least. So my second song is a little more of a personal um, song, an artist. It's by Elliot Bronson, who actually isn't originally from Atlanta. He grew up in Baltimore, but he moved to Atlanta to pursue his musical career. Put a something in my cup. Get the boys and pack the truck. We're gonna talk to mom, talk to mom now. I originally found him at a music festival, um, Warren Wood, and I just fell in love with his storytelling and the way he conveys himself on stage and even after he's finished playing a song. The one I chose, which is Time Ain't Nothing. Um, it's beautiful in the way that it tells the story um, of him growing up with his mother and that whole relationship. And he taught me that it's not as important to learn to just tell a story with your music, but it's also important to tell the story between the songs. And who you are between the songs really brings the audience in and connects them to who you are outside of the music. Well, I actually first heard it performed at Eddie's Attic. It really stuck with me, that whole like 10 minutes of him explaining, singing, it was really, really fantastic. Both of these songs um, have influenced the musician that I am, um, both with storytelling and with how I see music and how I write my music and compose it to make the listeners feel something. That is Avery Gibson. She's a National Young Arts Merit winner, and she's out with her first single, Look What You've Done. She's going to be performing at Eddie's Attic tonight. For more Georgia playlists, visit gpbnews.org.
To the Left, a tribute to the life of Lisa Lefty Lopez is now having a run at Atlanta's Synchronicity Theater through August 11th. Lopez was a member of the seminal hip-hop and R&B band TLC, the all-female group which held a steady place at the top of the charts in the 90s with hits like Creep, Waterfalls, and No Scrubs. Lopez died in a car crash in 2002 while vacationing in Honduras. She was just 30 years old. Ahead of Synchronicity Theater's tribute to the rapper and producer, we thought of another tribute to Left Eye from Angie Thomas on PRI Studio 360. Thomas is author of the best-selling young adult novel, The Hate You Give, which was made into a movie last year. She says that she was badly bullied as a kid. TLC and Lisa Lopez threw a lifeline. I had these two friends in middle school, and the three of us pretended we were TLC all the time. So I was always left eye, and they were T-Boz and Chili, and we would practice TLC songs in my driveway. We would um, play the songs maybe on a little Walkman, even though it had headphones. You could try to turn the volume all the way up so you could still hear it, and we would try to do the songs and the raps and everything and do our own little dances that they would do in the videos. But on the last day of sixth grade, my school decided to announce the students with the highest GPA. And I was a sixth grader, but I had the highest GPA in the entire school, more so than the seventh and eighth graders. And the teachers made the seventh graders feel kind of bad that a sixth grader had a higher GPA than them. So I guess they remembered that over the summer <laughs> because on my first day of seventh grade, the eighth graders just harassed me. I couldn't go down the hall without one of them pushing me or making a comment about me. They were calling me fatty. Um, they would push me. They would try to trip me, all kind of stuff. I remember looking for those friends that I just had in sixth grade that I was, you know, imitating TLC with, and they were silent. And I get it now because when you're that age, your first instinct is to protect yourself and not stick up for your friend. But I wished that they would stick up for me and they didn't. So I remember going home and just, I was done. I was done. My mom, I love my mom to death. And she did so much for me and for my grandmother. Um, she took care of my grandmother full time as a caregiver because my grandmother ended up having dementia. And then us struggling financially, not having a car, you know, having to ask neighbors to take us to the grocery store and stuff like that. It was hard. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to take care of me. I thought that that was the best thing um, if I just got out of the way. I had a moment where I just decided I was going to do it. 
and I locked myself in the bathroom and I was going to take some pain medicine. I, for some reason, took my little walk, my little CD player into the restroom with me and I just sat on the floor and I cried. And my mom was outside of the bathroom telling me, just come out, please, don't you know. She's trying to talk me down. She didn't know that I was trying to take pills or anything like that. But she was trying to just get me to come out to talk to her. And I wanted to drown her out. So I put my headphones on and I pushed play on the CD player. And Waterfalls came on. In that moment, I decided to really listen to the song. As much as I enjoyed the song, I decided to really listen to it and really listen to Lisa's rap. She ended the rap with saying, dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me and you. And I remember listening to those lyrics and it spoke to me in such a way that I decided, no, I'm not going to take these pills. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight. I'm going to keep going because there's a rainbow on the other side of this. I turned the CD off and I took my headphones off and I went out of the bathroom and I apologized to my mom because I knew I scared her. And I told her I was like, this song, I told her about the song. I said, this song just really changed me just now. Well, I started listening to him myself. My name is Julia Williams Thomas, and I'm Angie's mom. I thought about what Angie was going, had been going through, and I thought, oh, if I could just get Lisa to talk to Angie, maybe, maybe that would cheer her up. I called recording studios, record label companies, I called everybody and anybody I could think of to try. And I had some other co-workers and other parents say, girl, you crazy. I wouldn't be trying to call that woman. Uh, well, you can stay in your mode, baby, and I do crazy things, whatever it takes. And so I found the name of her studio that she had, had at that time, not realizing that was located at her house. So when I called, <laughs> there was this young lady on the phone answered, and I told her who I was and that my daughter was crazy about Lisa and how Lisa had really made an impact on my child's life. And I was like, if she could just say hello. And the next voice I heard was Lisa Left Eye Lopez. I was in another room. And my mom was talking to Left Eye from TLC on the phone and explaining to her everything. And my mom comes in the room where I am. I was watching television. My mom muted the television. She said, someone wants to speak to you. So I took the phone and I say hello. And she goes, hey, this is Left Eye. I dropped the phone. <laughs> I dropped the phone. And so when I got on the phone, she said, are you okay? <laughs> And I said, yes, ma'am. And then she was like, oh, you said ma'am. 
I don't think she was used to kids saying ma'am to her. So I'm Southern. I couldn't help it. And we were just talking and she, she, you kind of eased into it. You know, it wasn't a thing of from jump, let me talk her off the ledge. No, it was like, let me ease my way into it. So she told me, you know, your mom told me you've been going through some stuff. And she was like, I'm sorry that you, you know, feel like you have to end it, but don't. And she said, you know, you have so much to fight for. You've got your mom, you've got your grandmother, you've got so many things that you can do in your life one day. She said, don't take your life. She was a simple with it, you know, don't do it. And I used to wish that my life would end. You know, my mom would look at me and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so sad to hear you say that. And if you don't know what it feels like to be happy, you don't know what you don't know, you know? So it's, it's like there's no hope, but um, doesn't really have to be that way, so. She said, I'm talking from experience. And it may seem like it's hard right now, but I promise it will get better. I remember just, I was, I was just more so stunned that it was left eye talking to me, but still it's, it hit me. And I was like, yes, ma'am. You know, <laughs> Lisa said some things to her that really encouraged her in a way like I could never have done myself. At least I felt like I couldn't have, but it made a difference. It made an impact, and it stirred my daughter and encouraged her in a way, honey, that it's like, whatever, I'm going through this, and I'm coming out of this. TLC was the biggest girl group ever. At that time, they were, like, humongous. So the fact that my mom was able to find the number, the fact that we were able to get her on the phone, it showed me, okay, anything can happen. If that can happen, anything can happen for sure. That is young adult author Angie Thomas's memory of Lisa Left Eye Lopez. And that piece was put together by producer Daniel Guimet and used by permission from the public radio show Studio 360. To the left, a tribute to the life of Lisa Left Eye Lopez is on stage at Atlanta Synchronicity Theater through this Sunday, August 11th. And we'd love to hear from you. Did you face bullying as a child or even as an adult? Was there a Left Eye Lopez in your life supporting you either through their songs or books or movies or real-life communication to help you through? You can let us know on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can also follow us on Instagram at GPB News or email us on secondthought at gpb.org. Stay with us for Georgia-based writer Jocelyn Jackson. She's got a new book out, and it is a thriller called Never Have I Ever. We'll get a sneak peek from the author herself. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. From the outside, Amy Way looks middle-class normal. She's a new mom, a little older than the others in her Florida suburb. She's got a 15-year-old stepdaughter, an adoring college professor husband. She and her white, educated neighbor ladies watch each other's kids. They power walk, they shop at TJ Maxx, and get together at book club. 
But it's mining what's below the surface of ordinary lives that has made Jocelyn Jackson a multiple New York Times bestselling novelist. Her newest book, Never Have I Ever, ratchets things up to thriller level when a new neighbor knocks at Amy's door. The sultry and charming stranger, Rue, hijacks the agenda at book club and soon moves on to Amy's life with a blackmail scheme to expose a long-buried secret. Well, Jocelyn Jackson is going to be at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st to talk about Never Have I Ever and has a book launch tonight at Eagle Eye Books, but is here with us today. Welcome. So glad you're here. Oh, thanks for having me, Virginia. All right. So I gave a brief little sketch up there. Could you fill in the scene for when this mysterious woman, Rue, arrives at at, uh, this is so uh, Jocelyn Jackson, the brain dead mommy's book club. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, um, you know, they're adjuncts and administrators and librarians. They're living in a seaside college town. And Rue is different from the moment she steps in. Amy says she seems like somebody who would know how to make pate from scratch <laughs> or has a passport full of stamps or the kind of person who's probably had sex in a moving vehicle, maybe on the way to book club. <laughs> so she stands out immediately and she's very charismatic. So she derails the discussion of House of Mirth and gets everyone playing a drinking game that's designed to get you drunk enough to say more than you should. Uh-huh. So there's a passage early on about how the women initially respond to Rue. Could you read that for us? Oh, sure. I'd love to. We have a new neighbor, Charlotte said. This is her first time at book club. Let's all welcome, um, Rue. A murmur of hellos went around the circle, and Tate whispered something to Panda. Panda nodded like always, but maybe less emphatically than usual. Panda Greer was top-heavy and matronly, with both a plain, sweet face and a delicious husband. She had made Tate her best friend the minute the Benascos moved in, petting her, bringing over fruit and coffee almost every morning. It was as if Panda thought Tate was a smoking-hot volcano god that must be propitiated, propitiated, lest she erupt with sex all over Panda's marriage. Now Rue was in the room, an obvious expansion of a dangerous pantheon, and Tate was bristling at the competition— Panda couldn't serve both gods, and I was small-town enough to wonder how it would play out. I thought she'd likely stick by next-door Tate. The Sprite House was four blocks further away from the beautiful Mr. Greer. And the Sprite House, in this case, is Amy's best friend Char's Airbnb. You, you know, I know two things. You read, you do the audiobooks for your own books, right? I do, yeah. And I can just hear it now. But also that you're an actress. You know, you, you make acute observations of these little petty dynamics and little power plays and alliances. Is that part of your knack for watching human behavior, being oh, an actress? Oh, sure. I mean, people are, I, I think about my, I have this dog who, if you're petting another dog, she just loses her mind. And we're really not that different. Like, you see those little microcosms play out. We are we are mammals. We are pack animals. We have all these same kinds of instincts. And that's fun. Well, from the jump, we see, as you said, you know, she kind of hijacks the book club, derails the conversation, pours many drinks, and starts this game, Never Have I Ever. It's very like middle school, except everyone's older and a lot drunker, probably. And this eventually raises Amy's hackles. It's, it, what's happening to her? What's well, happening to Amy? Very quickly for Amy, it 
it it becomes very clear that Rue has aimed the game at her. This is not Rue is not coming here randomly to hijack a book club. She's after Amy. Amy is not exactly who she appears to be. She has reinvented herself after a very dark past, and Rue knows this coming in. Yeah, so she's she's a mar- she's a mark. Yeah, she's absolutely a mark. And I think one of the things that I like about this scene is there is all this sort of fun, petty snottiness, but there's also some really genuine, loving relationships that, and this is a community, and we all have our little uh, sore places in our neighborhoods and our community, that neighbor who won't cut their bushes back or whatever. But that's all layered over these relationships that really matter. Yeah, and she's made this life for herself yes. after this dark past. And it's, you know, later that Rue exposes that she has been targeting her. And we begin to learn more about Amy. She was an unpopular, overweight kid. Um, and after this defining event, a very self-destructive young adult, you know, drinking, indiscriminate sex. What changed for her? Uh, well, Amy uh, says scuba diving mm. changed it. Um, she found a place under the water where she could be at peace and sort of let her past go. There's a lot of baptism imagery that goes along with this. I mean, I, I knew she would be a scuba diver before I started the book because I wanted all those metaphors to be in place. I've, I've long called myself a redemption-obsessed novelist. <laughs> and and while this is a thriller and it's fun and there's twists and there's turns, I, I certainly am looking at the mechanics of grace. Yeah. And can you reinvent yourself? And their descriptions of it are just beautiful, being underwater. Oh, uh, you, you know, it, it to float in the same place as the truth, silent and unafraid. She says, this is this is how she does it. And you started scuba diving to research the book. What did it do for you? Oh, it changed the book. Like, I didn't have scuba diving be the thing that saved Amy. And, and it sort of made the book kind of cluttered in a weird way. And then I started diving. It's like yoga plus plus. It puts you in your body. You're in your breath. There's no past. There's no future. It's this moment that you are completely present. And I thought, oh, this is it. And so it really cleaned the book out and focused it. So there was just this one central metaphor that I could expand on. And I think it made the book cleaner and tighter and faster in Mm -hmm. terms of like making the theme really extant so that I could get to the kissing and the shooting. <laughs> well, there is so much. It's such a brisk pace. And that's one of the things I think your books are really known for, that you don't, you know, build up to this big denouement at the end, if I said that even properly. Sure. But that you have these little twists and turns in the plot. How do you pace those out? Well, I don't really like a book where you read for 90,000 words to get this one big whammo twist like and I don't think that's how life goes either I like there to be reversals and for revelations to come in spaced ways so you think you know what's happening you have a pretty good handle on it and then bang no now we're going this way now we're going that that's what I look for in a thriller and that's what I tried to do in this well this is your first thriller yes (laughs) so what 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 brought that about um I didn't set out to I didn't like today I should wake up and write a thriller (laughs) you know it wasn't like that I just started writing the book I wanted to right. And a couple of chapters in, I was like, oh, this is paced differently. I'm going to have to rework how the arc of this works. Mm. And so it like, it really, Virginia, it's my book. Like if you like my voice, my weird sense of humor, my female characters who act instead of reacting, it's definitely a Jocelyn Jackson book, but I've upped the stakes. Yeah. It's ratcheted up. Well, this is one of the things, too, I noticed that once the possibility of Amy's shame, let's say, getting out there, there's this kind of regression 
And and she says, Rue conjured this long transformed Amy Smith, basically. Yes. Who she was when she was growing up. She begins overeating. She can't stop herself, even when making herself feel sick. And that experience, secret, secretly using food embedded in her history, the history of so many women that I know, certainly. Hi. <laughs> okay, so I wondered, is this part of your history, too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, you none of my characters are me. But they're all mine. And so I explore the kinds of questions that drive me. And I think so many American women have an absolutely poisonous relationship with food. I'm, you know, I'm 51 now. I'm moderately at peace with food, but it is an uneasy peace. Yeah. And I, as a younger woman, it was all, you know, straight up war. Yeah. Uh, she was a former laxative user, binge eater. Yeah. I mean, She's so many bone women. Anorexic, so she does the whole spectrum of eating disorder. She's a compulsive overeater, a bulimic, and an anorexic, like depending on how it's manifesting. The whammy. My guest is Jocelyn Jackson, best-selling author of Gods in Alabama, Between Georgia, and six other novels, in addition to their newest, Never Have I Ever, which is a thriller. Well, th- this is the other thing that comes across here, like how frail ordinary life is, you know, how easy it was to get off track for Amy. Yes. And how the old survival tactics, you know, letting the lies roll off of her tongue. We all have these secrets. Have we all got this in us? I think so. I I, I will say that that it is a personality thing. Like one of the things that's the most interesting to me about this book is that if Rue and Amy took Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, they would get very similar results. The sorting hat would pop them both right into Slytherin. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I would be put in Slytherin. I think there's some good people who are Slytherins. But, you know, they, they're they two sides of the same coin. And what really, so when what looks like a cat and mouse game, Rue comes in to play cat and mouse, and very quickly she's playing cat and cat. Mm. So they're well matched, which I think makes it a more fun iteration of cat and mouse. Yeah, this is one of the things that comes across in the brinksmanship, I think, (laughs) between the two of them. Um, They see themselves in each other. Yes. And and Amy says, you know, she's schooled in dishonesty. And it made me think, you know, takes a con to know a con, right? Yeah. The only, but in a way, Rue's the only person who truly knows her. Yes. It, Rue knows her whole history and Rue understands her personality. So at the same time that, you know, Amy hates her, Rue's coming to destroy her life. But there's an undeniable attraction there because she recognizes herself. One reviewer called it um, a cross between Desperate Housewives and Killing Eve, <laughs> which I think is, yes, if those two had a baby, it would be I'll my take book. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it also made me think, you know, as I was thinking about that, that relationship between the cons, that being a novelist is a bit of a con, right? You are, you are, you are, you are gaining people's faith in these characters and who you are presenting. And then there's all these switches and misdirections. Yes. I'm, I'm not thinking that the, that's your next career necessarily. <laughs> As a con. Well, you know, I do come out of theater, so yeah. I, I understand the mechanics of that pretty well. And, and I do want to say too, though, you know, I, I really like Amy. I don't think she's an unreliable narrator. She doesn't tell any lies to the reader that she's not telling to herself like she really is trying to be a good person and i i think that's what i look for in a character that i'm going to be interested in because it's it is not easy just to be a good person mm. just to be especially if you have a past like amy's trying to live down but just even just the mechanics of goodness we're all so busy and we're all so egocentric and we're all so this and that and i i do 
you know, she has some questionable skill sets, but I I like her. Yeah, and they were hard, you know, honestly come upon. You know, they were they were yes. formed because of this trauma in her life. And and even if Rue does know her better than anyone else, she she knows her on her worst day ever. You know what happens yes. on her worst day. And this made me think a lot about, you know, justice and forgiveness of others and of the self. Is that anything that you are working through in the book? Yes. I, mean, I know you know this. I, I work with a group called Reforming Arts. Yeah. We are a small nonprofit that works to bring higher education to Georgia's prison system. And I think a lot of, I mean, I was already interested in reinvention and redemption, which is probably why I work with reforming arts. But certainly my work there has tempered that. Like I I see people who are going to get out of prison and they want a connected, sustainable, good life. They just want some opportunities and they're going to be defined by one thing they did Mm -hmm. maybe 30 years ago. I mean, this is Max we're talking about the one that they do this thing and it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But you can't walk around your whole life holding the worst thing you've ever done in the palm of your hand, staring at it. You can't define yourself that way. And and so I'm I guess I was interested in in can you reinvent to that degree? Can't how can you will other people let you? Can you remake a life into something connected and sustainable and sweet when you have this thing in your hand? Will anybody let you put that down ever? And you're teaching writing to them, correct? At uh, least yeah. Creative writing, composition, literature, because I think that is like if you can tell your narrative, you can control your narrative and you can change your narrative. Mm -hmm. Like if you can express it and think about it on those terms, you can change it. Giving them a tool to work it out in some level. Yeah. Or you're just creating space where that can happen, where there's a room with some agency in it. And um, and also just on a more pragmatic level, I think education equals opportunity. Mm. So if you have an education, when you get out, you're already to a place where there's going to be more opportunities for you to build a sustainable life. This is, I think, a rich vein that I've seen in your other books, too, you know, like troubled adolescents. They go through things and then they become adults with their lives put together. And and many of them leave home. They get as far away as possible. You know, like (laughs) uh, uh, Amy basically goes to the other side of other coast, you know. Uh, so, so is that necessary? Leaving home behind to to reinvent the self. I I think it's a huge it's a huge help. Like I think it's very hard to reinvent yourself if you are in the same place with the same people, um, because you know that old thing: lie down with dogs. Get it. it's really true. Like how much the people you choose to be the dearest people in your life, how much those relationships shape you. I don't think we're really aware of that. Yeah. And and in the book, you know, Amy enters into a relationship with Rue. So it's that idea of how can I fight this person who's doing all these wrong things without losing the self I'm trying to become, without entering, like, I have to, if I go down to her level to fight her, do I lose this person I've invented that's who I really want to be? How much, how far do I have to go to protect that person? You know, it's a catch-22. It is such a slippery slope here. Uh, just um, before we close, The House of the Mirth is the novel that they're discussing yes. at Book Club, right? <laughs> this 19th century novel, uh, Edith Wharton novel, yes. also about blackmail and a woman threatened to have her past exposed. And obviously, there have been blackmail stories about men, too. But do you think the reputational risks 
are different yes. for women. I, yeah, of course. I, I'm glad you caught that. The House of Mirth was a very intentional choice. Anybody who's familiar with that book is going to that's that was a little bit of uh, literature humor. I there. was an English major. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. You know, it's a book about social social mores, and this book is definitely about that. And it's about reputation, and it's about what it means to be a woman wrestling with these things. I mean, it is, uh, you, I've seen that story so many times, you know, you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back, but it's almost always told by and about men. And I wanted to look at it. How would it be different if it were women and not just women, mothers, because I think the most dangerous animal on the planet is a mother, anything. <laughs> well, looking forward to the next thriller, maybe, or, or whatever you come up with. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, we're going to leave you with Dr. John's Mama Roo, exposing the dark side as we remember to tell you that Jocelyn will be at the Decatur Book Festival, the new book, Never Have I Ever, having a book launch party tonight at Eagle Eye Books. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer with help from Bram Sable-Smith, Jesse Nyswanger, our engineer, Amy Kiley is our senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please come back and join us again with On Second Thought. Ooh, I get your spy, boy. Tell yourself to die.